You're listening to Blind Entrepreneurship, an interview series podcast that highlights the stories of the top business professionals around the world. In each episode, we explore how entrepreneurs overcame blindness in business in order to execute their vision. podcast is brought to you by Penji. I'm your host, Jonathan Grzbowski, and today we have Alex Hillman on the show. Alex is a community builder and co-working pioneer. He's always thinking about the intersection of people, relationships, trust, and business. He is the the founder of Indie Hall back in 2006, and it is now one of the, the world's most oldest, fully independent co-working communities. And with that said, Alex is truly an OG in the world of co-working, doing co-working way before co-working was even cool. And we start talking about in the converse, in the conversation, in the episode, you'll hear conversations that are go way beyond just the idea of community building. It's about the execution. I also highly recommend, and this will be in the show notes, to head over to Alex's website, which is dangerouslyawesome.com. And he does some really cool blogging, um, and he has a lot of really cool blogs about his thoughts, the transparency of everything within Indie Hall, um, and just how he's living through the world of, of co-working, even during now a time where it's extremely popular, um, but also just the relationship building, uh, community management, and execution as well. So head over and check it out, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Penji. Are you in charge of marketing for your business and need graphic design support? Let Penji design anything you need for your business, from a logo to your marketing materials, sales sheets, social media content, and so much more. Penji helps you achieve more with unlimited graphic design support, daily output, and a dedicated project manager, all at one flat monthly rate. We have an exclusive offer to the Blind Entrepreneur community. Head over to penji.co and use the coupon code BLIND for 15% off your first month. Again, that's penji.co, P-E-N-J-I.co, and use the coupon code BLIND for 15% off your first month of Penji. And now, let's get to today's episode. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's an honor to have you. You're one of the OGs of co-working, I must say, uh, whether that's in fi- both Philadelphia and also, uh, you know, dare I say, the world. You, you kind of pioneered the, the idea of, of, of co-working. Well, an OG is a nice way of uh, saying dinosaur. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we've, we've been at it for a while. It's been quite, uh, quite an incredible thing. I definitely had no idea what I was signing up for when we get, got started, but um, it's connected to me to people around the world. And that's one of the coolest parts about what I get to do. Yeah, absolutely. And and so the way I start the podcast off is in a fun way is I always ask like, is it true question? And I found some really interesting things about you. Um, so is it true that you actually have your very own Lego figure? Yeah, that's brand new. I sure do. And it's not like of me, Yeah, um, but it is a, uh, we recently worked with a local artist here, uh, Corey Cohen, check him out on Instagram. It's Coco uh coco com pro um he makes these amazing lego figure 
um, tributes to like movies and pop culture and stuff like that. And we worked with him to take our, we have this kind of iconic indie hall hoodie, um, which is a whole other story. But I, I messaged him and I was like, do you think you could shrink our hoodie down to be printed on a Lego? <laughs> and he, uh, he did it. And so we just got those last week. We gave them out to some of our old head members for our 13 year anniversary and everybody's loves them. Absolutely loves them. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. 13 years in, uh, in one business is an absolute, like huge, massive success. So kudos to you. Thanks. Absolutely. So as we move into the, the official conversation and the value driven things, I, I want to talk a little bit about something that's near and dear to you know, your heart and mine. And it's the idea behind, uh, big wins versus small wins. And I think that there's never a way where you can kind of just have that one massive win that's going to propel you to success. But for somebody like yourself, who's been running a business for 13 years, you've had to have both small wins and big wins. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting things is, uh, you know, I get emails and phone calls from folks that want to start a, a place or a community like Indie Hall or honestly, any kind of business, you know, I get uh, this is sort of unique purview of lots of different kinds of businesses. So people see, you know, not just me, but also the people I'm surrounded by every day and say, I want to do that. And one of the really interesting, common, like super incredibly common themes is people are looking for, you know, the silver bullet fix, or, you know, what's the one thing that changed everything. And, and, it doesn't exist. Um, and it's like, I don't, I, I, I hate being that kind of buzzkill, but also that's the kind of the, you know, the business mentor that I, I sometimes end up being is like, there's no single big win. I mean, there are lots of really important factors, whether it's, um, you know, being in a, a, a situation where I have, people around me that I can look up to and learn from, but there's no like one lesson I got from any one of them that changed everything. Mm. Um, you know, I think, I think about my business arc, um, and just my career in general. And it's, you know, moving forward is this wig weird, like zigzaggy line. Um, and you know, I can create a linear story. I could, think about, you know, who, who's listening to me share my story and I can pick out a particular lesson that maybe adapts to them. And I think that's the way most people hear about a particular entrepreneurial story. Um, but for me, it's really hard to pick out. And I, cause I don't think there was one single big win. It's more, I, I'd say if there's one big thing that I've gotten right, it's that I, I take my time and I'm consistent about my decision-making. I try to make the same decision, whether things are really good or things are really bad. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. You kind of have like a, um, like a, uh, a criteria, so to speak of like, if, if I'm in a situation, then here is my criteria in which I need to do in order to make a good decision. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's actually, there was a book that I read a, um, a number of years ago by an author and a writer whose name is Umer Haq, H-A-Q-U-E. Um, he writes for Harvard Business Review from time to time. He's written a few books. He's written a lot of like very ranty essays about the collapse of the global economy. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's, he's kind of a trip to follow and he's definitely like this, almost like doomsday prophet shouting from the corner about like 
don't you see the world is falling apart? Capitalism is killing everything. Um, and those to a lot of degree, like, I agree with him. Um, I don't agree with the way the message is always delivered, but he's written some really great things. And the two books that really stand out to me and, and maybe made a mark in how I think about things. Um, the first one that I read is The New Capitalist Manifesto, um, which really just kind of reframes um, things like the demand for growth and scale around, you know, more network and ecosystem driven business where, you know, growth and scale aren't inherently bad, but growth and scale with, you know, un no unchecked boundaries and no consideration for the interdependencies around them is how we ended up in some of the messes that we're in today. Um, mm -hmm. And then he has a second, much smaller book uh, called Betterness, Betterness being sort of a twist on busyness, which is how you spell business. Um, and in that book, he broke down sort of like a, um, the thesis there was, you know, we run our businesses from a PNL or, or, or a balance sheet or say and a balance sheet. Um, but the PNL and the balance sheet are this like very, I should say the PNL is this very high level view of the business. If you're looking, if you're growing a business just from the PNL, it can look like you're making lots of money while you're actually also losing lots of money. Mm -hmm. And that, and it kind of obfuscates the reality. Whereas a balance sheet shows you some granularity of yes, there are massive gains in one area, but there's proportionate or sometimes disproportionate losses elsewhere in the business. That's the job of the balance sheet. And so his suggestion is maybe we need a balance sheet that includes other things besides financial capital have our balance sheet that includes knowledge capital, social capital, uh, uh, ecological capital, um, and things like that. So, you know, with, with that kind of mindset, when I'm, when I'm thinking about my decision-making process, whether it's, you know, a small decision about who I take a meeting with or a big decision about who I, you know, who I do business with or who I hire or, you know, where I spend my time and things like that, um, they all kind of get made through the same decision-making framework that takes into account all the other kinds of capital besides financial capital, mm. including financial capital, naturally. Um, and I, we actually I did the exercise many years ago of actually writing it down. Um, and, and it's uh, on the Indie Hall website even um, under uh, our our. Uh, under the menu, there's a section that says our values and our virtues. Um, and the values, our core values being uh, community, sustainability, openness, uh, and collaboration. But the virtues are this sort of checklist. Uh, checklist almost diminishes it. But it's the, it is the rubric, as you described it before, by which mm. we make decisions. It's the things that we the things that allow us to say yes and the things that make us say no, or if not no, they're the things that say, if it's going to be, we got to change that piece. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot, if you look at ours, almost everything there comes back to putting our, our people first, whether that's our, my team, my community, um, people are at the center of every single decision, the ability um, and the aptitude to bring people together and have the sum be greater than the parts is at the core of every single decision, including ones that don't seem to relate to it because I have to think about it from that balance sheet perspective of how will introducing this new thing that may create gains in one part of the business potentially detract from 
even if it's simply just removing our finite capacity, we can only do so many things in a day. Is this going to take away from that in some way, or is it going to add to? If it adds to, it's a yes. If it takes away, it's a no, or we got to change it. Yeah. I mean, from with that, with that said, uh, changing, right? From 13 years ago, you know, we can even use round numbers, 10 years or so ago, co-working, the idea of co-working that wasn't necessarily a thing, or dare I say, collaborative workspaces. Sure. Um, I, I, they weren't even a thing. And so, and if they were, they weren't as cool as it, as it is now. Um, <laughs> and so nowadays it is cool to go to a co-working space or a collaborative workspace to interact with other people. And so like from a change perspective, you've seen the changes from the infancy to the, um, you know, again, dare I say the height, um, yeah, you know, right. what are some things that, that you've seen from like a community standpoint from like, you know, again, beginning to, to now. Yeah. One of the biggest things it's, it has been that the word co-working is now used to describe so many things. Um, even, you know, a luxury apartment building opens up uh, and where previously they would have put a, lounge they now have a co-working space mm -hmm. it's the same thing but they're using the word co-working to describe the space because their market identifies with it and there was a high perception of value there mm. so there was a there was a time early on where because i was really invested in in sort of the origins of co-working as not just an idea but also like a movement um of, of an identity um, when I started seeing other people use that term, I felt a, a great deal of resistance. And, and there was a lot of like othering, if, if that term makes sense. I would say they are not like us, therefore they are not co-working. Um, and I, with hindsight being 2020, I can say confidently it was so valuable to live through the experience of something nascent going mainstream because now I look at other things happening and I'm like, oh, I've been through that too. Mm. Um, and the, the truth is, is that today the word co-working is about as specific as the word restaurant, right? <laughs> if I say, Jonathan, we're going to go get dinner at a restaurant, you're going to say, cool, well, what kind of restaurant? And I can say something like, oh, you know, it's this, you know, fine dining Italian restaurant or it's this like cool local casual neighborhood joint or we're going to, it's an Irish pub or we're going to, it's my favorite, you know, Thai restaurant. Uh, and just a couple of extra terms give you some clues about not just what the food's going to be, but also how to dress, what the price might be, what the experience is going to be like, all kinds of things because you have a couple of extra pieces of terminology in addition to the word restaurant, co-working isn't there yet. And so we're in this kind of weird limbo where lots of things are co-working. And so if I put myself in the shoes of somebody who's interested in joining a co-working space, how the hell do you find the one that you want? Um, it's a pretty miserable experience. But what I think that does is it puts the onus back on us, the, the operators, the community builders to not just rely on the word co-working, but instead get really clear about what we're good at, 
who we're good at that with and for, you know, who is in the community? Why would they want to join? What problem does this solve? Why do they want to be here? Also, who doesn't our version make sense for? In the case of Indie Hall, we've never really been focused on, you know, startups, teams, and corporations. We're focused more on the, the individual because it's in our core values to focus mm-hmm. on the individual human being. So it's more freelancers, you know, solo workers, entrepreneurs, consultants, but also increasingly remote workers because they feel the same sense of isolation and loneliness that a freelancer or an entrepreneur does. Um, it's not identical, but you know, we have the thing in common that working from home by ourselves is isolating, lonely, not great for productivity, not great for creativity. And sometimes, maybe not every day, but sometimes I want to get out of the house and be around other people. Yeah. And when that problem resonates, somebody kind of a really strong sense that they're coming to the right place. I've got a lot of practice and experience describing who we're good for, when and why. Um, not a lot of other operators, I should say a lot of other operators in the space don't have that. And the truth is, is I hope we get to a point where I can say Indie Hall is, you know, X kind of co-working in the same way I can say we're going to an upscale Thai restaurant and you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, I've got to paint a little bit more of a vignette. I think that's just the reality of being a part of an emerging market is being willing to repeat yourself a million times and be as enthusiastic and, um, and real about what, it, and excited. Like every single person who walks into Indie Hall wanting to know what this is and why it could fit for them. Um, just cause I've said it, you know, 50,000 times or my teammate has, has the same, that person's hearing it for the first time. It can't feel to them like we've said it 50,000 times, it needs to feel to them like it's the first time we're saying it, we're saying it just for them. Um, that's, you know, we talk about the longevity of, of doing something uh, and sort of back to our conversation before about, you know, big wins. I'd say it's not, from, it's not, rather than thinking about big wins, it's like, what are the things that I've been willing to do the longest and repeat myself? <laughs> yeah, is, absolutely. is one of them. And I think, you know, when, when I think that's true of, uh, of any sort of business owners, um, you know, we want to build systems and processes and streamline and efficiency. But at the end of the day, like you're gonna say new, slightly new versions of the same thing for about as long as you run that business. Um, and that's a really, um, maybe that I don't, I didn't, I was certainly never told that reality when I got into business, yeah. um, that repetition is actually a good thing. Um, especially technology folks, you know, I come from a technology background and there's this, this uh, uh, concept in programming of dry, don't repeat yourself to write efficient, easy, readable, maintainable code and, and sort of refactor and rewrite it so that code is not repeated throughout the entire coding system. I think business is the complete opposite. You should be so comfortable and so good at repeating yourself because you need to every single day say yeah. the same thing with the same amount of of heart and belief and uh, enthusiasm and and everything. You need to bring be able to bring everything to it every single time. Well, not to mention, but the more times you say it, you it's just to some degree, and now I do this for myself. You kind of trick yourself into believing that it's going to happen eventually. So, <laughs> yes, you, you do. You, you start to drink your own Kool-Aid. I think, you know, uh, beyond that also, I mean, treat every time you say it as practice. Yeah, um, true. To be able to say, you know, 
I, I, if I'm having a conversation with somebody, I'm looking at, you know, body language and what of what I'm saying is connecting. And is there a slightly different way I can say it? And that goes into the, the file of next time I'm talking to somebody who has things in common with this, with these problems or these ideas or these experiences, I have this sort of like nearly infinite Rolodex of ways to describe the thing based on who I'm talking to. Mm. Um, there's no pat pitch. There's, you know, if I, if you were to come to Indie Hall and get a tour, everyone's tour is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Our tour is not, you know, it's not a Disney ride. Um, it's not to your left are the desks, to your right is the coffee pot, and over there are the meeting rooms. Although that happens, like we're, we're using the physical space as a backdrop to describe how the things that you came here wanting to do or are interested in happen in those places and how yeah. you fulfill on being connected to, uh, surrounded by, and, and, and feeling a part of the other people who use those same resources as you. Yeah. I, when you're talking about, uh, I guess, just like the essence of what Indie Hall is, which is, you know, uh, a, again, collaborative, a lot of people who are freelancers who primarily work from home, that to me is is a very core foundation of like how co-working originally started. Yeah. And I want to kind of take the conversation into two aspects of it, which is you know, ecosystem and then just like work life. Um, so I'm just kind of prefacing that as we, as we continue where my, where my head is in terms of just like talking. Um, but when you were talking about, um, the freelance model and then them now working inside of like a, a very large workspace with other people that they could vibe off of, there has to be like this, this ecosystem that is being built where they feel comfortable talking to people. And I can say in full transparency that a lot of times that you go into places, you don't feel like talking to people because it's just the weird vibe and weird energy. So in order to do that, you have to be a stellar person at communication at setting expectations and building that culture. So what are some tips and tricks that you've used in order to you know, build that ecosystem that allows people to actually want to communicate with one another? Yeah. I mean, it is, it is the thing, right? And it's, it's easy to put people in proximity to each other. It is really, really tough to get them to give a shit about each other. Um, and I think that's, that's at the heart of everything. So, you know, I, I've pulled lots of lessons from more from like urban design and neighborhood design than anywhere else. Um, A little bit from like organizational design and behavioral design and stuff like that. But neighborhoods, if you think about a co-working space more like a little neighborhood, what makes a neighborhood great, right? If you've ever lived in a neighborhood that's, you know, not so great or people, you know, they come home, they pull into their, pull the car into the garage, the garage door closes behind them. They never interact with their neighbors except in the most superficial ways at most versus a neighborhood where people, where there's a, that, that even if even if you can't put your finger on it, there's a feeling that you're describing, right? You said it before. It's like even if people are, uh, even if you wanted to talk to people, there's a feeling where you're like I don't think I'm supposed to, mm-hmm. right? So, I think the difference between those neighborhoods is whether or not people feel a sense of ownership and have contributed, or even the ability to contribute to the neighborhood. So, you know, a neighborhood where. A, a, a neatly manicured lawn done by some, you know, overnight lawn service gnomes 
um, or or where basically when everything is done by services, you end up in the situation where people have no sense of ownership because everything is just done for them. Yeah, and that's something that's very counterintuitive. I think a lot of people look at co-working as a hospitality business, as in comparable to like the hotel industry, or even though I was comparing it to the restaurant industry, I, I think I, other than the analogy that I made before, I think it has a lot less to do with the, uh, the restaurant industry, which are undeniably service-based businesses where people are coming to pay to receive a service. Um, and I think that co-working, there's elements of that, but I think people miss out on the traditional elements of hospitality, which is making fe people feel like they belong, making people feel comfortable and making people feel, not comfortable in the sense of like nothing could possibly go wrong, but comfortable in like, I know my surroundings. I know the other people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and at the end of the day, feeling empowered and feeling connected. So um, to, to tie it back to the uh, restaurant analogy, um, if you've ever or tried to order wine off a wine list and asked, you know, for a recommendation and the, the sommelier or the waiter, you know, dumps a bunch of information on you that ultimately just makes you feel dumber uh, for not knowing. And now you're even, now you're just like, well, just pick something for me because I'm done feeling crappy about this versus a, a server or a sommelier who asks you questions and teaches you something about how to make the decision so that you can make the decision for yourself the next time you order, or you maybe you even feel like you did make the decision yourself, even though they were there guiding you. That is the kind of hospitality that we strive for, where we view ourselves as sort of the Iron Man suit for the member, right? Mm. The member's gonna do the thing, we're there to assist and make them more, you know, faster, better, stronger, more powerful, more confident, more connected, whatever it is. We're not gonna do it for you, we're gonna do it with you. And yeah. I think that vibe, really starts with theirs where people feel a sense of ownership, um, the ability to contribute to not just the physical place, but to each other, the ability to pitch an idea, be heard, have that idea, not just for somebody to come to me and say, hey, um, it'd be really cool if Indie Hall had a podcast studio. And I could say, cool, I'm gonna go spend $5,000 and outfit a podcast studio. Or I could say, cool, do you know if there's anyone else in the community interested in this? Why don't we, you know, grab lunch and talk about what kind of podcast we want to make? Is anybody interested in doing the research? Maybe somebody's already done the research on what equipment we should get. Does anybody want to help set it up? Does anybody want to help, you know, pick out the stuff, install the you know, acoustic treatment? And getting people involved in the things they want to create um, is, I think, at the, at the root of that vibe that experience where people actually want to talk to each other. And the beautiful thing is, is once you've established it, it's kind of a snowball rolling downhill is once people see it because it's modeled by other members, they go, Oh, this is a place where people can contribute. This is a place mm -hmm. where people look after each other. This is a place where people do things together. And once you've modeled it once you, it, it is not, it's not automatic. I don't want to be like, do it once and it's good, for, you know, set it and forget it but it is so much easier once that ball is rolling compared to the initial cold start. So Indie Hall's origin, we, we don't need to get into an origin story, but Indie, I did not open an office. I built a community. We went and found locations together. We picked a location. Uh, I vetted that the business side of it would probably work. I signed the lease and then we set up the the initial office together and every version that we've we've expanded multiple times we've relocated multiple times every version has actually been 
sort of the same pattern. I, I liken it more to a barn raising where the community constructs this resource for themselves and other people in the community. That sense of co-creation is so fundamentally different from the service oriented, I set up an office for you, now you pay a monthly fee in exchange for having access to it. There are, on the surface level, it can look that way and there are components of that, yeah, but that absolutely. is not what we do. Um, and I think that is why we have, uh, there's a lot of other reasons, but I think that's at the heart of why we have the culture that we have, where when you come in, this feels like a place that people created together. It feels more like a home than an office because people actually have lived in it. It's not a curated, manicured experience to send a specific message. It's kind of, you know, uh, um, ever evolving and organic and always changing because the people in the room are always changing. Sure. And they're, you know, somebody new shows up and they're just as capable of introducing something as, as the person who came before them. Yeah. And, and I think you raise a, a very interesting point of like, if, if everything is done for you, then what do you really have to do? You kind of have to make the investment in yourself, both from like an entrepreneurial standpoint, but also from like a working standpoint. Yes. And if it's all done for you, then, you know, again, why, why would you do it? Um, I feel like at times things that are pressured upon you to do, but at the end of the day, you have to innately want to do it for yourself and for your company or for your, you know, your, your psyche. Totally. A lot of times co-working in particular can have this like head down, uh, approach to just like working. Um, and that culture has then transpired into like the startup culture and the entrepreneur culture and like the hustle culture. And so I kind of like to hear from your perspective of like, not only from just like a, co a co-working perspective, but just from like a, a, a business perspective, because you're an entrepreneur as well. Um, the, the idea behind like work-life balance and mm. I'll kind of just like let you run it from there in terms of like what your <laughs> overall thoughts are and, yeah. and how important that is. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm cautious to preach about anything around work-life balance because, uh, I certainly have in the past and at recent times, whatever I was doing, it could not be considered balance. Yeah. Um, totally. I, I think, and everybody is though. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So I think, huh, I think I'm going to track this back to what we were talking about before about alignment of, of sort of values and virtues. Um, the way I work is the way I live. And it's not that my work is my life or my life is my work, but I bring the same degree of sort of integrity. I try to bring the same degree of integrity and thoughtfulness to both. Um, I care about the people in my life the way I care about the people in my work and vice versa. And actually I can tell a quick story that I think illustrates this. I was teaching a workshop about, about co-working in South Korea a few years ago. Um, it was my first time teaching through a translator, which was an incredible experience. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, Cause you, you tell a joke and, and it, it's delayed and you don't know whether it landed or not. Um, but in the Q and a uh, uh, someone asked, you know, you talk about trust 
as such a key component to culture. And it is, I think that's, I don't know if I said the word trust yet in this conversation, but I think at the root of everything that we're saying is like giving people an opportunity to build trust with each other is what that co-creation process is all about. And then you get all the other stuff. And she said, I get, I get the whole trust thing and why you'd want that in your personal relationships, but what about your professional relationships? And I said, why are they different? And she said, well, they, because they just are and I said are they or did we decide that they are mm. and I thinking about it I think and this is a cultural thing where and I think it's especially true in in the business like the the fastest moving business world where trust in the business world operates in a negative 10 to zero spectrum it's measured from how much I distrust you to neutral right so if I'm doing business with you, you start somewhere at near the bottom of that spectrum if you're a total stranger, because I think that you're trying to you know, scam me or screw me or, you're, or just trying to sell me something. And as you do a good job of earning my trust, you make your way up to a zero. And the closer you're to a zero, the more likely I am to buy something from you. But if you're at a, a near a zero, does that mean that I would you know, trust you to borrow my car or watch my kids or mm. um, with an important login or, or password, you know, like would I trust you with the most important things in my life? Probably not. Meanwhile, in our personal lives, most of the time trust starts somewhere near a zero. I don't assume everyone that wants that I meet, you know, at a social experience is trying to screw me over because there's, I think there's just fewer ways to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have an opportunity to build from zero up to a positive 10 and the people who are closest to the positive 10 end of the spectrum become the people who I would let have a key to my home would, you know, watch my kids who I'd want to meet my family, those kinds of things. And I think if you think about that neg negative 10 to zero spectrum is the business world and the, the zero to positive 10 as the personal world, that's the problem. I don't operate in the negative 10 to zero space. I refuse to. That's a personal choice. And I'm, I'm privileged in that I have been able to uh, uh, build myself the resources and in some cases been granted the resources to be able to make that choice and say, I'm not going to do work with somebody who I don't believe or trust, period. Doesn't matter how good the deal terms are, doesn't matter what I stand to gain, I won't do it. Every, everybody that I work with is in the zero to positive 10 range. Um, and so I think it's sort of a roundabout way to answer your question about work-life balance, but I think it illustrates the point of like, we treat them as such different things. And I think that is inherently part of the problem. I think if we get honest about the way we want to live and make that also the way we work, a lot of things start to become clearer. That doesn't necessarily make them easier, at least not in the short term, but in the long term, when you're super clear and honest about your sort of your operating mode and you don't have to bounce between them, uh, you don't lose all the sort of energy and fidelity of sort of mode switching. I don't have like a work mode and a life mode. I just have a being Alex Hillman mode and I bring that to everything I do, whether it's work or life. Yeah, I respect that. I mean, that's huge. And the best part about that is that it's free. <laughs> you know, it's, it's free. It's free to be that, that person and, and be a good person and be able to introduce yourself to other people to show that love and support. Um, it's and, uncomfortable uh, sometimes, but the, the positive 
far outweighs it and the gains of being able, you know, I think people connect when they're like, oh, wow, you are the same person regardless of what context we're in. Yeah. I mean, apart from that, just I think it's just you're more trustworthy. I think people, my, my hope is that to somebody who's maybe thinking about being different people in different contexts, that maybe for them, they're like, maybe I, maybe I should think twice next time I'm putting on a mask in a different context just because I think I'm supposed to. Yeah, that's true. And who wants to talk to the person with two faces at the end of the day, right? <laughs> that's true. Um, I think something also that I kind of want to hit at, and I'd be remiss to, um, to not even bring it up, is the idea behind sustainability. Mm-hmm. And um, you're very much so into the, the Philadelphia area. Um, and you talked about some, some goals and some missions that you have. And I'd like to just briefly hint at that, uh, just to kind of like lay the expectations of like, you know, who you are again, but yeah. and the idea of like, how can we as a community, as a human society, help people like yourself be able to obtain those dreams? So can you speak to a little bit about that? Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I watched in some kind of shock and awe as the leadership of our city of Philadelphia and of many cities across the country did backflips and spent uncomfortable amounts of time and money to attempt to attract Amazon's second headquarters to their region. Uh, Amazon's promising 50,000 jobs and, you know, untold riches in exchange for um, unprecedented tax breaks and incentives and all kinds of other things and watching the watching people just like clamor over like never mind the 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 discourse or the politics of it which is a whole other story um just watching people scramble for it was was baffling to me um and and to to be clear i i think that fifty thousand jobs is a good thing for almost any region um, 50,000 jobs from one company is about the worst way to do it. And that one company being Amazon is provably the worst, worst way to do it. Um, but rather than kind of engage in the, you know, the FU Amazon approach, I was more interested in, well, what are the alternatives? And also now I've got a number for years. I've wondered, you know, in our city, you, you know, Jonathan, you, I'm sure, you know, folks at Comcast, Comcast is like our existing, like corporate me- mega corporate citizen, um, and we don't have a great relationship with them um, as a corporate citizen. Um, and if we can't get that right, and they're born and you know born and bred in Philadelphia, what are we doing trying to attract another one? Um, but but also, you know, how big do you need to be in order to get the attention of City Hall or the city as a as a population? And now I have a number. The number is apparently 50,000 jobs is the, num- is the size you need to be to be important enough for everybody to pay attention to you for 18 months nonstop in the news. So I thought to myself, well, what if I said I was going to bring 50,000 jobs to the region over 10 years, which was the Amazon promise. You know, it wasn't 50,000 jobs in year one. It was spread out over 10 years of growth. Mm. And I started thinking, well, how would we actually do that? And what's actually better than one Amazon 50,000 jobs. So five companies, you know, 10,000 people would be better. 10, 000, 10 companies of 5,000 people would be better and so on and so forth. From a business ecosystem perspective, 50,000 entrepreneurs doesn't make sense either because people need jobs for all kinds of reasons. But you, you, you need, especially a city like Philadelphia, where we're, we're the, the largest, poor, the poorest large city in the country, jobs are desperately needed. Not just jobs, but jobs where people can be paid a good wage to 
to build wealth and opportunity and things like that is, is absolutely critical to the region. So somewhere in the middle of that math, um, I landed on the number of 10,000 people creating a company and more specifically creating a job for themselves. And the reason for that is, is I think that as a culture, we've gotten wrapped up in this idea that in order to start a business, I need to have a, I need to go out and raise a bunch of money and I need to build the next Facebook or the next tech startup or whatever it is. When in reality, most businesses are one person businesses. Mm -hmm. Statistically in the state of Pennsylvania and most states in the country, most businesses are one person businesses. And close behind that is the two to five person business. But we don't hear about them right? Unless usually unless something extraordinary has happened. But I think there's something extraordinary about a person creating a job for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth celebrating. And so for the next 10 years, I want to be working and this is sort of my North Star and the North Star of Indy Hall in helping people become sustainable independents. And since you asked about sustainability, a quantify what it means to be a sustainable independent to me is that you are earning the equivalent or better to what you could doing a similar job in a, in a corporate setting, right? So you're not only earning a wage that pays, that pays you, but you also can afford the full stack of benefits. You can take time off, travel, you know, vacation with your family. You can raise a family. You can buy a home. Basically, there's all these things that people are afforded by being a W-2 employee um, with the trade-off of having one company that gets to rule your life. And I think that we should celebrate the people who have figured out and help more people figure out how to build all of those opportunities for themselves and for themselves first. Because I think that people rush into building a company instead of creating a job for themselves is they never get around to putting on their oxygen mask. And you know, you're on an airplane, mm. that in-flight speech we've heard a million times, put on your oxygen mask before helping other people. It's because if you don't, you can't help other people. Very true. You die. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are so busy trying to grow the company, they don't take care of themselves. They don't put on their own oxygen mask first. And it's not an act of selfishness. It's also not an act of selflessness. It's just an act of sustainability. And so I want to first start by celebrating those people who have created a job for themselves as real entrepreneurs, as much of a real entrepreneur as you know anybody who's on the cover of Inc. Magazine or Entrepreneur Magazine, you are as much of a real entrepreneur. And then some of those people, a lot of those people probably shouldn't hire or grow their business because it takes a, that takes another set of skills and, and goals. And most people, I don't want to say can't, but, but maybe even shouldn't um, in order for them to reach their goals. But for the ones who can, to then teach them how to build the business to that point, how to, how to grow sustainably, um, and then also how to hire more sustainably and um, and how to hire more ethically and how yeah. to manage more sustainably and manage more ethically. And all these things that are like our business culture is kind of messed up because we've been so focused on just being the biggest and returning the greatest shareholder uh, returns. And we forgot about, you know, com companies are just people, whether it's one or a thousand or 10,000 or 50,000. Um, but it all starts with, those first 10,000 people. And so that's kind of my, my North star um, framed it as the, the 10,000 independence project. 
Um, and I have sort of a, a, an 8,000 word manifesto if anybody wants to pour themselves a glass of whiskey and mm. down with that um, at my website, which is dangerouslyawesome.com slash 10K. Um, and it sort of outlines why I think the, the time for this is now, why I think it works in, it works in Philadelphia. Also, this, this is the kind of thing that could work in, honestly, every city and ever the mayor of every city that invested time and money into the Amazon HQ2 pitch, I believe owes it to their citizens to de dedicate at least, if not more of the same resources to an idea like this, mm -hmm. because I think it has a better chance of working with far less chance of destruction. Um, and, and to be fair, like other than bringing some people in our existing ecosystem who are already doing components of this work together, people who are experts in, a, you know, in helping employers build out apprenticeship programs to both give people the skills, but also put them alongside the people who do what they want to do or um, working with the commerce department on programs. How can the city make it easier for people? Um, you know, our city is kind of notoriously complicated on the paperwork and remittance side of things. The city wants to help fix that. I'm working on the healthcare side of things, which is among the more complicated uh, pieces of that equation. And we could probably talk for another hour about that and what I've learned. Um, but uh, uh, we're working with some partners on creating resources both to educate and offer a more complete stack of not just insurance, but healthcare paths to getting good healthcare when you don't have an employer able to subsidize the rising cost of healthcare in America. Um, this is all these are pieces and, and no one, in fact, there's no big win in this. It's a ton of tiny wins that add up. Um, so, so 10 K independence is sort of my, 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 uh, when you read that manifesto, sometimes it looks like a plan. Um, that's a trick. Um, <laughs> if you read it closely, it's not a plan. It's more of a way of thinking, a more of a way of breaking the big problem down into smaller problems. Mm -hmm. And my most exciting part to me is that as people read it, it's sort of like a Rorschach test. Something jumps out at them or they go, that, I know something about that. I can contribute to that. Or I've experienced that, or I'm currently experiencing that. I want help with that. Or have you talked to this person? Or do you know about this organization? You know about this program? And when people read it and something sticks out to them and they tell me about it, it all kind of goes into this, this kind of cauldron of stuff that is making, will make this real. Um, so you know, folks that are listening, if, if this is interesting, again, whether you're in the Philadelphia region or not, um, read it and you want to reach out because something leapt out at you. I want to hear from you. That's super important to me. It's probably the most important part of this project right now is that this is connecting me with the people who want to, be a part of it and contribute to it um, at dangerouslyawesome.com slash 10k. Uh, uh, you can email me, Alex, at Indie Hall. I, uh, I very much want to hear what people think. Absolutely. And, and all the links will be in the show notes uh, so people can read, can follow along and everything else. Um, I can say your pot, uh, geez, your website is absolutely amazing and really great designed and really Thank well you. thought out. So Thank kudos you. to you on that one. Um, but I think, you know, you kind of hinted at the very end and I was going to say it uh, while you're talking was politicians in the most part. And I'm generalizing, of course, um, they want to see that that big win, but what actually wins at the end are the small victories that, that culminate over time. Um, and so Alex, with that said, thank you so much for your time and your dedication to the 
the community of, of startups to the community of entrepreneurship uh, and business as a whole. You know, congratulations on 13 years. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, lastly, if you, you could just hit, uh, tell us a little bit more about those websites one more time, just so everybody uh, can jot it down in their memory or just as another reminder to go into the show notes. Yeah, so if you are in the Philadelphia region or you're ever visiting, come by Indy Hall. Uh, it's indiehall.org. Um, we'd love to give you a tour, come and work for the day. Let, let, uh, let us know that you heard about us in the podcast and you can come and hang out for the day uh, for free. Cool. Um, the, my personal site where I write about co-working, community, culture, business, and things like that uh, is dangerouslyawesome.com. Uh, all sort of back archive of the history of Indy Hall stories and things like that. Um, and then specifically that manifesto is uh, dangerouslyawesome.com slash 10K. Very cool. Awesome, man. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Cheers. Thanks, man. You've been listening to Blind Entrepreneurship brought to you by Penji. Our guest this week was Alex Hillman. You can learn more about him and, and his company at dangerouslyawesome.com. And you can head over to his co-working website, which the company is called Indie Hall. And you can check that out at indiehall.org. It is primarily and only based in Philadelphia. So it is relevant to you if you are from Philadelphia. However, his website is not, and it is a global website, and he talks about global things at scale um, that are way beyond the, the world of Philadelphia. So uh, head over to dangerouslyawesome.com. Again, all of the links are in the show notes. And with that said, if you liked and enjoyed this episode, head over to tbeshow.com and share this episode with a friend. Drop a comment. Let me know that you like it. To find more about Penji and the, the thing that I do full-time, head over to penji.co if you are in need of a simple, easy, and affordable graphics, graphic design solution for your business. Go out there and execute your vision, everybody. Have a great rest of your day.